There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today marks 20 years since the death of Mr. Rogers, as Fred Rogers died on February 27, 2003. I spoke to Nicholas Ma, son of cellist Yo-Yo Ma, about producing the 2018 documentary Won't You Be My Neighbor, directed by Morgan Neville. Thanks so much for joining us. So glad to be here. I gotta say, it was one of the, one of my favorite viewing experiences of the year so far. Um, we all went in there, and the second that music hits, you're all, we're all just kind of <laughs> singing it together under our breath in the theater. And by the end, surprisingly, how much we were choking up at multiple parts of this. Um, why did you guys set out to do this? I know it's timed with his 90th birthday, um, but why overall did you think this was a, a perfect time and the climate, politically, everything for this type of movie? Sure, sure. Look, I think, you know, Morgan and I have talked about this project for a number of years, and I think we thought it was something that would uh, be on, our, on sort of the back burner. But uh, in the past two years, there's been such a remarkable interest in Fred and in his legacy, and in particular, his ability to craft for over 30 years a message that unified Americans uh, from all parts of the country, from all different backgrounds and ways of life, you know, from the ages of two to six, children would sit in front of his television and understand something profound about what it means to be a person and what it means to be a kind person. And I think that that is a message uh, of unity that really resonates right now. So as we started making, all of a sudden people came out of the woodwork to help us, you know, in terms of financing, it happened really quickly. In terms of uh, the edit, we walked down into the Fred Rogers Center in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and it was like walking into a wonderland of archive material of these extraordinary moments in history in which Fred talks about all sorts of issues, from Bobby Kennedy's assassination to divorce. And, uh, you know, it just, it somehow it felt like the karma and kismet was really, was really right for this film at this moment in time. Absolutely. And to that point, I mean, one of the things that's powerful at the end is when he says, um, you know, it's sort of the end of his life. I think we're even post 9-11 at this point, and he's a little distraught. But he, he, he kind of comes around and says the main challenge for the new millennium is to see if we can tap into our inner goodness or not. That TV can be used for good or for bad. And he was starting to worry about the direction we were headed. And I think now with so much partisan mudslinging and, you know, braggadocious kind of nature from the top leaders of the country, I feel like it's almost refreshing to to see someone that was just purely about a good message. I mean, how do you think he'd view the state of the world today? I mean, do you think he'd be troubled like he, <laughs> like he was at the end of the documentary, or would he be hopeful in some way? You know what? I think he saw an enormous amount of hope in everybody, right? He had a kind of, I think because his focus was children, right? And because in his mind, uh, every child starts out with the chance to be, uh, to be, 
a special human being. I think uh, he would he would see hope in the future, but I think he would also see a responsibility on each of us, not just on our leaders, but a responsibility on each of us to bring the best of who we are to the world. I mean, he put it so lovely in his commencement speech at Dartmouth towards the end of his life, in which he asked us to thank those people who encourage us to be true to the best within us, right? Not just true to the best in some abstract way, and not just true to whatever's within us, but true to the best within us. And I think, gosh, now that is a tall order, but one that is eminently achievable by all of us and one that it wouldn't hurt to sort of keep in the back of our heads. That said, he wasn't a saint. You know, it was the first thing that his widow said when we met with her. He said, please don't make him out to be a saint. He was someone who tried incredibly hard and took the work he did incredibly seriously. But it wasn't that it was easy, and it wasn't that um, it was, uh, it was, he was born that way. It was that he said, you know, this is something that's important and important for me and important for others, so I'm going to do it. And I think that's also a good reminder that we actually have the power to change at least the world around us, if not the world at large. I love it. Talk about, I mean, it's a fascinating individual. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, deeply religious, lifelong Republican. And then on the other hand, he's slipping some very progressive, even subversive messages in there. I mean, um, but but doing so in like a, a gracious manner. I mean, he was this brilliant kind of uh, cross section of America in a way, but also kind of pushing us towards our better angels. Um, for instance, you mentioned the Bobby Kennedy assassination. He helped the country do yeah. that. You and but the thing that really stood out to me was the segregated swimming pools at a time. You know, African Americans were you know getting shouted out and chased out of quote unquote white swimming pools. Uh, Fred has the the African American character on in and and bathes and washes his feet in a kiddie pool, which I mean. Come on, that's to him. That's that's a Christ-like thing, washing the feet. So uh, you know, talk about how it was little things like that that um, almost helped change the society in almost in a in a subconscious, subtle way. You know, viewers turned in and and almost were being led in this direction that maybe didn't even realize on the surface. You know, I think there's something really true about that. I think he never wanted. I mean, he was an ordained Presbyterian minister, but he never wanted to preach. He wanted to teach through his show to to elevate, to, to rear children, but not to preach uh, with an explicitly religious message. And yet, of course, because his tradition was so deeply religious, that symbology, you know, exists throughout the show in a really profound way. I think the film really tries to invite audiences from, uh, who, from wherever they come to be part of the show and to think about the issues on the show. But Fred also was keen to make sure that he he challenged any audience. He challenged an audience that perhaps had lost their faith to see faith as something that could be a source of strength. He challenged audiences that perhaps uh, were less inclusive to see inclusion as a core component of what it means to be human. And I think that combination of inclusivity and challenge uh, is something that we tried to capture in this film because uh, you know, who, who wants to just uh, say things that people already believe, you know? Absolutely. And and talk about how, I mean, he has sort of this reputation of, you know, buttoned up, the sweater, you know, kind of the calm, <laughs> slow demeanor kind of a thing. But talk about also how... Um, it was pretty daring to take on some of those topics like, hey, we're going to do a whole episode on death and helping you get over oh death or divorce. But talk about how um, he was able to – I mean, it's, it's just treating kids with a certain level of respect like, okay, they can handle this if I, if I talk straight to them. His attitude was anything that a child might encounter in their life was fair game for him to talk about. 
And I think, you know, there was a period in time where he thought he had finished it and he left the show and then he came back because he realized that while the inside of children might uh, be consistent, their outside world has changed. And so he started addressing questions like superheroes, like uh, divorce, and started going deeper into questions of death and inclusivity. And, you know, he was one of the first people on television to feature uh, children with special needs. Uh, and, you know, constantly saying, look, if this is something that a child might encounter, they need to have someone that encourages them to understand it. Because, uh, you know, as, as, the, as Director Morgan Neville is fond of saying, fear is at the root of so many of our ills in this world. And he wanted to give children for whom the world can be a scary place the tools to understand it better. And I think in a way he wanted to give parents and adults those same tools by speaking to the children within them. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. That's awesome. And speaking of fears, he also wasn't af- afraid to um, turn the mirror on himself and some of his own deep-rooted childhood fears. I am mean, being bullied and things as a kid. Um... Talk about how that sort of manifested itself through the through the puppet of uh, Daniel Daniel Tiger, who has his own animated show now that my nephew <laughs> loves. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. But talk about how how that character almost you know when they go into the trolley into the world of make believe, how Fred was able to um, kind of I mean every puppet was almost based on someone he knew with Lady Fairchild with his aunt and that sort of thing. Um, but how how specifically Daniel Tiger was him venting some of his own insecurities. Yeah, I think that it's one of the most beautiful things that he was able with this small puppet to uh, to bring to the surface the fears that he had had as a child and the fears that he had as an adult, right? One of my favorite moments in the show, and we were so pleased to be able to, to feature in the film, was, uh, was Daniel Tiger talking to Lady Aberlin about feeling like a mistake, which is, I think, a feeling that we all have had at different moments in time. And, and Daniel sings this 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 little passage asking, am I a mistake? Uh, and I think that that is a, shows the kind of vulnerability that he was willing to bring to the show at all times, and also the doubt that I think spurred him to keep doing it for so many years, right? You know, very early on, on his deathbed, Joanne, uh, Joanne told us that on his deathbed, uh, he, he said to her, am I a sheep or am I a goat? And of course, that's, you know, uh, directly from the gospel, this notion of, am I worthy of the kingdom of heaven or not? And for someone who did so much for so many over so many years to still worry about that, you know, tells you a little bit about what in his character drove him to make this show um, with such seriousness for so long. Absolutely, and when you were talking about it, it reminded me of a scene of the movie when you mentioned the Lady Aberlin, um, am I a mistake kind of a deal. He also was an artistic genius in uh, in almost a deceptive way, like an underrated way. Um, that song where it, they do the duet, you know, and and and, and yeah. Daniel Tiger singing about you know feeling left out, bullied, and mistake. She she comes back and and sings the response of no, you know, you're, you're worthwhile, you know, like what any parent would say. But 
the thing that struck me from his artistic side was instead of just letting Lady Aberlin have have sort of the the final word there. Daniel Tiger comes back in a duet, and they're kind of cross-singing across each other of, am I a mistake? No, you're welcome. And they go back and forth and talk about how just little things like that showed his artistic side. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Not only is there a philosophical component to that, as you sort of said, right, this notion that these are fears that are real and genuine, and therefore he wouldn't want to discount them. But there's also a beautiful musical side of his ability to express that through song. Right. I mean, he was such a talented musician. He was a, a composition major down at Rollins College where he met his wife. And um, I think that that for him, music was in some ways the most primal expression of who we are as people and who we are at that time in our life. Absolutely. P- tell me, what's the imp- what did Morgan Neville bring to the table as the director? Um, I mean, we've seen, God, he's done so many good docs over the years. Uh, oh, my. 20, 20 Feet from Stardom, uh, Best of Enemies, the Gore Vidal uh, Buckley one a couple years ago. Why was he such a good fit for this, and uh, when did he actually get involved? Was he there from the very start? Yeah, so, you know, a few years ago he was doing a movie called Music of Strangers, uh, and he was interviewing uh, the, the cellist Yoyama, who also happens to be my father, and asked him, how did you learn to be a public figure? And he said, uh, Mr. Rogers taught me. And I think in that moment, a seed was planted in his head, because it's sort of an unexpected answer. Uh, and, um, you know, a few years later, he and I were talking, we had collaborated on a few smaller projects, and he said, hey, you know, this came up, do you think this would be a good topic for documentary? I think even before the words were out of his mouth, I was saying, yes, yes, a thousand times, yes, I think this would be extraordinary. You know, I had known Fred, and been on the show when I was six, when I was 16. And so the opportunity, you know, the two of us sort of then went down and, and spoke with the estate and Karen, who's, uh, you know, his producer in his office, and the three of us decided to collaborate and, and make this a reality. Uh, I think, you know, Morgan is one of those people who is able to tell stories with such depth and sensitivity, right? You know, this is not a documentary where uh, some horrible insight is revealed. It's not, it's, it's, it's surprising, but not shocking. And I think, uh, you know, Morgan is one of those rare directors who's able to find the drama uh, in, in quiet stories and stories of ideas. You know, when we spoke with the estate, that was ultimately what allowed them to feel comfortable giving us all the access in the world to everything that they had with no strings attached. The fact that we talked about this as a, as a story about ideas, not sort of a... Uh, a, a, a traditional biopic where you sort of march through the chapters of someone's life. And, you know, I don't think there's anyone uh, out there better at telling those types of stories than Morgan. So it was such a privilege to work on this with him. Awesome. Well, you mentioned that Yo-Yo Ma is your father, <laughs> and he has some interesting uh, interviews in the movie, including one. What, I, what, there was one that made the audience laugh. I think it was the first time he comes on and he says, I actually was kind of, he was actually kind of weird at first when I met him. <laughs> said, oh, my word. Like, yeah. like he talked really close to his face or something. But then, of course, obviously, as he continues to get interviewed in the documentary, you can totally see the respect and affection that he gained for him. Um, but talk about your father's own memories that, that either were in the movie or that he's told you through the years of, of working with, with Mr. Rogers? Yeah, I mean, I think both of us had a very similar love and affection for him as a person. And um, I think uh, the uh, his memories, you know, I, I, I called up Joanne early on in the process and I said, Joanne, is it true? Did, were, did my father and, and Fred really talk as much as, as people say they did? And she said, oh, yes, oh, yes. And I said, well, what did they talk about? And she said, they talked about two things. They talked a lot about family 
And I talked a lot about another F word of four letters. And of course, I got nervous. And she said, fame. And, uh, you know, that she has sort of, uh, she's a wonderful compliment to Fred's personality. And, uh, and I think that that's such a wonderful tribute to what their friendship was about. How do you, as a public figure, maintain what's important in life, which, you know, is, is family and the people that you're closest to, as well as maintaining, um, uh, uh, some role in, in the public square that feels like it's additive to our discourse and who we are as a, as a society. And, uh, I think, you know, Fred is one of those people who struggled with that and continued to think about that question, but ultimately I think, uh, was, uh, a, a, a pretty wonderful role model. Well, in closing, uh, speaking of adding to our public discourse. What, what do you want audiences to, to take away from this? I mean, uh, I'm sure that's the goal of, of most any documentary. You want us to walk out um, and, and sort of view the world around us in, in, a, in a new, hopefully, uh, you know, more enlightened way. So when, when our listeners, no matter what age they are, when they see this documentary, what, what do you want them to take out into the world and, and spread that, that, that Mr. Rogers, Fred himself, would have, would have liked us to take away? I, I, think, I think for me... I always walk away from watching the film feeling a little bit more uh, feeling challenged to do better and confident that I can in whatever I bring to the world. And I think that that is, you know, the greatest gift that he gave children. And that is the greatest gift that he can give us uh, all as a, as a community today, you know, and, um, so I think that's what I would hope that, as a viewer, one would walk away with. Awesome. Well, you've been more than generous with your time, and I got—I can't say it enough. I, I absolutely love the movie. I'm pulling for Oscar nominations and all that oh. stuff. <laughs> I know it debuted at Sundance, which must have been fun. But, um, yeah, man, it's it's just you guys did such a good job with it. So I'm hoping I'm hoping that everyone goes and sees it. I hope that I hope you're right, and I hope that everyone has a chance to see it, and not only tell people about it, but take people to it, because it's a movie that deserves to be experienced with others. Thanks. Awesome. Again, everybody, uh, Nicholas Ma, producer of Won't You Be My Neighbor, the new amazing documentary about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and Fred Rogers himself. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.